right. Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to VUX World. I was going to say welcome back to VUX World because it's been a two-week hiatus on my part. I haven't had a two-week holiday probably since Christmas, maybe. I don't even know if I had two weeks off then. Um, so apologies for the break, but here we are back in full force. Today we're chatting to Greg Whiteside, who's the CEO of Human First, who are doing some incredible work in an area of AI and conversational AI that is incredibly underserved at the moment. It is all around uh, helping you utilize the data that you have, and the data that you gather either before you begin a project or during an ongoing conversational AI initiative to make sure that you can use the data that you have to build better assistance, better bots and all that kind of stuff. So I'm definitely keen to get into this conversation with Greg. Before I bring Greg on, I want to give a shout out to Deepgram, who is the presenting sponsor for VUX World. And if you don't know by now, Deepgram is industry leading speech recognition that has been powering all kinds of applications for all times and types of companies. NASA uses Deepgram speech recognition for a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you can use it in your call centers. You can use it in your voice assistants. Anything that requires speech recognition, taking spoken language and translating that into text to be used and fed into, for example, a natural language understanding system. That is what Deepgram does extremely well. Most of the off-the-shelf speech recognition systems, they don't allow you to do any kind of tailoring, any kind of tweaking. And in fact, Deepgram's deep neural net approach actually gives its general model, which is the off-the-shelf thing that you can just start with today by going to deepgram.com forward slash VUXworld, outperforms most of the off-the-shelf models. In fact, I think it is does outperform all of them, actually. But you can even retrain it to make sure that you can tailor your speech recognition needs for your specific use cases, your customers' jargon, your customers' accents, and all that kind of stuff can all be retrained to make sure that you get the utmost accuracy from your voice assistant. So please do go to deepgram.com forward slash VUX world to explore what Deepgram have to offer. And if you are building or debating building a voice assistant, then you will need speech recognition and you won't find a better place to start than deepgram.com forward slash VUX world. So thank you, Deepgram, for presenting this episode of VUX world. And without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, please welcome Greg Whiteside of Human First. Greg, welcome. Hey, Kane. Good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. We've, uh, thank you for making this, uh, this comeback episode. Feels like a comeback. I feel like I've been away for so long. I feel like a baby. I feel like a newborn baby. I know. My, my uh, LinkedIn feed was empty. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, yeah. I mean, I've missed, I've missed LinkedIn a bit. I have had a complete detox from technology. Um, entirely haven't picked my phone up haven't opened any apps whatsoever the only app i've opened is my camera and i even hardly opened that usually i've got like millions of photos from every holiday i've ever been on whereas this one i've got about 50 <laughs> i'll forget it before long if i'm not careful uh, you come back stronger from that type of detox yeah i think i hope so i hope so i, I feel as daft as a brush at the moment i feel like I'm just, God, yeah i feel like i'm a newborn baby anyway Anyway, uh, but you're going you're going away soon. Anyway, so you'll know you'll know you'll have the feeling coming up straight away in sunny Portugal. That's right, getting all, getting all the work done just before I leave. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Nice. Well, thanks for joining us, Greg. Appreciate it. I've, we've been connected on LinkedIn for a while. I've been following your posts and Human First and, and the journey you've been on and stuff like that. Incredibly exciting company. Uh, I spoke to Alex on your team numerous times over and over again and every time I speak to him I feel like I learn something new and so it's definitely an interesting company interesting uh, vision interesting tool I'm wondering whether you might be able to share with people a little bit about yourself and a, and a bit about human first as well give people some context yeah sure uh, so I can start a bit with myself 
Um, so my background is uh, software engineering. So I, I studied uh, and uh, graduated at uh, University of Ottawa, um, worked a bit uh, in software development, uh, but then quickly pivoted and went uh, straight into uh, building startups. So I've been uh, part of the Montreal ecosystem here of, of startups for the last 12 years. I was organizing a lot of events and kind of helping bring the community together um, while building three really unsuccessful startups um, in the music space and in the uh, general web development space uh, until I, I met um, a team uh, that back then was called Forever Alive um, and they were building a, a password manager uh, and I joined them and we, uh, we switched the name to Password Box um, and we built this uh, really great um, powerful password manager that we uh, sold to Intel uh, really quickly less than two years later. Um, so I had a really exciting uh, kind of journey there, building uh, a team and building a product and doing a lot of great things, uh, both before and after our acquisition by Intel. And uh, that's where I also met uh, Matt, uh, my co-founder and CTO, um, who we managed to hire uh, within uh, Password Box uh, to, to help kind of scale our technology. Uh, and Intel divested the project after three years, and that's when my um, two co-founders and I decided to start Human First. Um, and so we built Human First, um, initially a very different project uh, from what it is today. But the thesis was always the same, um, is that it was an increasing amount of uh, conversational and natural language data being generated uh, between custom companies and their customers across all types of channels. And the opportunities to leverage that data um, would, would multiply, but we didn't see easy ways for companies to actually tap into that uh, data and turn it into meaningful and, and valuable insights and, and AI training data easily. Um, and so that's why we built Human First and we, we did a pretty big pivot um, halfway into the company. Uh, but now, um, you know, I've really found product market fit and are really excited kind of by where uh, both the, the uh, market and the solution uh, are going. Mm. So you mentioned you had a, uh, you come from a music background. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what kind of, what kind of music? Oh, I should plug my Spotify on your channel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm i I'm a guitar player. I mean, I did a lot of music. Uh, I played the piano and violin when I was a kid. Uh, but I've been doing guitar uh, since a teenager and writing songs and uh, uh, at some point contemplated being a, a musician, but then figured I couldn't live with the uh, stress and the critique. So uh, <laughs> I, I decided I'd leave that as a hobby. Uh, but I still play and uh, yeah, I have a Spotify channel. I'll send it to you afterwards. Yeah, definitely. That sounds really good. Yeah, I, I made music myself for a while, although I wasn't ever as gifted enough to play an instrument. I had a MIDI keyboard yeah. and I would play a little, I would play synth, like I used to use Cubase and a bunch of different synthesized plugins and that. I used to play a little synth in there and that. Uh, but then I used to do a lot of sampling. So I just used to assign a sample to each key and you just yeah. basically tap on the piano to tap out a drum beat and then you just like take a bunch of different samples of guitars and you mash them all up and that. So yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's quite a lot of people have come into the kind of like conversational AI space from a music background, which is really interesting. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously creative fields and I think the, uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunity to be creative in the conversational AI field, like when, in terms of creating the personality. So I'm not that surprised, but, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's always been more of a hobby, though. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, Napster thwarted my uh, my my uh, music dreams when I realised that uh, <laughs> all the revenue was dropping out of it, and I wasn't sure what to do. So yeah, I ended up turning to marketing. I originally went to study marketing as a way of trying to sell music. Funnily enough, so. Uh, yeah, some somewhere down the lines, I, I, I fell off the rails. I can't, don't know exactly when it was, but there you go. <laughs> my, my learning is that there's no money though in music startups, are very very hard to monetize. Even good products, uh, labels and musicians typically are not, you know, thinking about. Uh, I mean, musicians particularly are hard to uh, convince to pay for for uh, services, and that's that's kind of normal. So yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. That is very true. Um, you also mentioned that you had you said you had a couple of failed startups. I think that's that's also quite common with a lot of people who I, who I kind of speak to, whether we discuss it on air or affairs, is that they've had a few stabs at a few things. And obviously you learn a lot during the process. You probably learn a lot around not necessarily, um, uh, you know, in terms of if, if a business failed, there might be certain reasons for it. But every time you go into a new venture, you take some of the fundamental foundational skills into it, understanding how to approach trying to find product market fit and how to organize teams and so that. I'm wondering whether there's anything in particular that you learned during the first two ventures that, that you took into human first. Yeah. I mean, the, the key thing in the first two ventures is that I was mostly working alone. Um, obviously very, very inexperienced, kind of very naive. Like uh, I think a lot of people who start, uh, building software products, you know, it, it seems like you build it and they will come. Obviously, that never happens. Uh, but um, I think going at it alone and especially without the support and uh, network and mentorship of people who have gone through those failures first means that you're almost doomed to fail a few times. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's natural what I went through. The the persistence of keeping at it after many years of failure, though, I think that's a uh, I think a sign of entrepreneurs, like they keep going. And so that's what I, I did. And, and luckily, you know, I, I think through luck and timing, managed to meet that team that had, um, you know, a serial entrepreneur behind it, um, my co-founder today. And, um, you know, that, that that was kind of what led to a lot of the realizations of what I was doing wrong and also what you need to do to build a, the right type of business. Um, so with Human First now, like the key thing was bringing together the top talent that we had at Password Box uh, into this adventure and then recruiting some of the best talent as well um, to, to help us. Um, but uh, I think I've stayed or kept a lot of the initial instincts, which is to stay small. Uh, you know, Human First, we're a very small team uh, doing kind of big things relative to the size. And I, I think that's still kind of my instinct is to not, you know, necessarily think about scaling too fast, too big uh, in terms of team and rather trying to optimize for the uh, kind of the output of, of each person. Mm, that's good. So what was the pivot that you mentioned then? Human First went through some kind of pivot. What was that pivot and what led to it? Yeah, so initially when we started, the first version of Human First was a, a browser extension that you installed on Chrome and it integrated with all the live chat platforms like uh, Live Chat Inc. and Intercom. And it would uh, take all the data going through from the agent conversations and pipe it into our model in the cloud. And it was this was a kind of a big black box model. And that would spit out um, autocomplete and suggestions, basically smart replies that the agent could use uh, when they were having conversations with customers. And that's what we so we raised a, a pre-seed for that product because we had customers, we had some traction. Um, and, and the idea was really to accelerate the speed of reply. Um, but we, we've 
very quickly kind of decided to pivot based on two learnings. Um, one was that our customers were telling us that the speed of reply wasn't as important as the quality of the replies. So they wanted to be able to go and change the output of the model, um, but also really understand kind of what the model was on, was doing uh, and to be able to go and tweak it. So um, harness kind of the, the that AI. Uh, and then the second thing, I mean, it wasn't a learning, but more an observation is that we were we saw that like our core team wasn't going to be able to compete with some of the much, much bigger models that we expected would come out um, that were being built by like the big cloud pl- uh, cloud providers. Um, and, you know, Gmail's autocomplete was kind of the first proof of that uh, came out fairly quickly afterwards. And then obviously GPT-3 and these other really big generative models that are kind of ingest a lot of data and then spit out something that you don't control, uh, but that's fairly good, you know, would have blown us out of the water in that type of um, go to market. So, um, yeah, that's what led us to, to look at this and say, OK, well, what is the really like based on what customers are saying? Um, really what we need to be able to do is start from that raw data, which we had a lot of across thousands of different types of businesses and industries and say, if you want to transform this raw data into high quality um, curated data sets that are custom to your domain, like what do you need to do? And that's when we realized that there was really no tooling to do that, nothing productized. Um, and that all of the teams we were seeing were doing very manual and ad hoc things around, you know, data science teams and these clustering and like, but all, all very technical, uh, you know, um, workflows and, and, and tools. Um, and so that's really what we, we focused on was building out the, the, the kind of core capabilities that allow, you know, non-technical users as well as technical users to do that transformation uh, of raw data into high quality labeled data. Um, but along the way, like we, we, we right now, you know, our, our platform really doesn't have any end user um, experience. But at the beginning, we left kind of some of that initial end user experience we had. So the agent augmentation. And then we also built kind of a chatbot end user experience. Um, and, and we quickly like we, we saw this really red ocean of all these other players basically, you know, promising exactly the same end user experience. The only thing we saw is that under the hood, like we were very, very much stronger on the data management and data engineering side. Um, and, and so at some point we, we surveyed, you know, 50 teams building NLU and said, you know, what is the pain point that you guys have, regardless of the stack and of kind of the, the platform you're using? And it became clear that the, 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 the roadblock to scaling those projects was increasingly becoming the data uh, and the data preparation and the the kind of continuous improvement of that data. Uh, and that's what led us to, you know, strip our human first of everything that was end user facing and really build this kind of horizontal layer that uh, could integrate with all, all other parts of your stack, but really give really um, strong data engineering capabilities. Mm. I suppose there's a temptation, isn't there, as you've as you went through, and it must have been a big decision to pull back from the end user stuff. Because I think that when you think about the, the kind of like pipeline of technologies needed to stand up a solution like a chatbot or a, a voice assistant or something like that, there's lots of different parts to it. And if you look at some of the platforms out there, you know, the Cognigies and Core AIs, et cetera, they kind of have the component parts. They might ingest some third parties here and there under the hood, but at least present it to look as though it's one platform and it's like the temptation is to 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 
kind of start with the problem, which in this case is the kind of whole data management side of things. But then on its own, it's it's kind of, you mentioned that it integrates with everything else. On on its own, that thing on its own, sitting siloed, becomes a bit of a hindrance to someone's workflow, doesn't it? So the temptation might be to carry on down the pipeline. And before you know it, you've got this whole end-to-end platform and the specialism and the real kind of like nuanced feature that or, or set of features that you've built that solve a very specific problem get drowned out because you're trying to focus on a lot of different random things, isn't it? Yeah, I think, and that's a question that we get asked, uh, you know, is ultimately are we going to go back and kind of and re-add those components to the platform? Um, because as you said, like it, ultimately you're talking to customers that are trying to solve problems and, and sometimes you know, the, the building block that we provide, you know, would facilitate or, or could provide kind of the a very strong foundation to then add uh, these end user experiences. But uh, I think we see kind of the, the, the problem big enough in itself and also, um, you know, crossing boundaries across, you know, conversational AI use cases, but also other areas that really depend on uh, natural language understanding and having, you know, really, really great solid um, data. So I think there's tons of opportunities and tons of kind of end user experiences that need to be built, um, you know, in call center and in uh, analytics, et cetera. And, but I, those all depend on this con- common denominator. And so our vision, I think, is going to be really to be extremely, um, extremely efficient and provide kind of the best in class uh, data-centric tooling, but let others uh, kind of build the the end-user experiences that's going to be powered by that. Mm, yeah, makes sense. So for someone who's never used human-first before, we're talking a lot about data management and all this kind of stuff. You've mentioned data science, the phrase, a couple of times. Like For yeah. someone who has never come across human-first, but maybe they've built a few chatbots, or maybe they actually they, they, they're full-time job is to design conversations or build NLP engines or whatever it might be, NLU engines, sorry. How would you describe how someone might use human first? Yeah. So, you know, for, for somebody who's kind of in the field and who knows the, you know, kind of what it takes to build a chatbot or anything really that, that depends on natural language understanding, uh, the key concepts when you're building kind of any, any kind of system like that, um, is to build out um, a list of intents and entities that define, you know, what you want your AI to understand and to be able to act on. Um, and, and typically, once you get past a certain scale of, of intents and entities, um, and you want to go from, you know, being able to understand 50 different things to understand hundreds or thousands of different things, um, it becomes very tedious and very error-prone um, because you're, you're building data sets that can contain a lot of ambiguity um, and, and also you're, you're organizing data in ways that are often very, very hard to maintain. So human first at its core allows teams to really simplify that process of building and maintaining very, very high quality custom data sets that are custom to your domain. Um, and, and specifically, we allow you to do that by, by starting from the raw data that you have that can be coming from any source. So it can be your existing call logs or your existing chat logs, or it can be your ongoing uh, chats that customers are having with your chatbot. Um, really any kind of natural language data um, 
ingest it into human first and then use our, our very simple capabilities to identify, discover what those intents are, where there's gaps in the knowledge that your, your chatbot doesn't understand, uh, what kind of training examples could be added to improve the accuracy of the chatbot. Um, so it's the, the entire life cycle of the data that is used to go into a natural language understanding model that we facilitate. Mm. Interesting, because a lot of times for those who haven't got this kind of tool in, all of this becomes a manual job, doesn't it? Manually reviewing every single line of dialogue, every yeah. single transcript and being like, is that relevant? What do we do with this? Where does that map to? And then actually finding conflicts is something that's now impossible. Yeah, and this is really what led us to build or to to focus on the the kind of the this um, generic data layer, but uh, speaking to even the most advanced teams and even teams building conversational platforms themselves. Um, you know, often the, the conversational platforms, they have professional service teams that go and build out uh, chatbots for their customers using that. So you mentioned Cognitive, for example. You know, even speaking with teams as mature as those, we realized that the, the tools and the internal workflows that they were building these chatbots around were still around Excel. So like they say Excel is, you know, every startup's enemy or the biggest enemy. Uh, in our case, it's true as well. Uh, I think Excel is the go-to um, central place where teams still do this work. And of course, it's less than optimal. Um, so, so what we, you know, we think that a lot of the dependency the teams had on, you know, their data science resources to do things like, you know, clustering data or, or evaluating, you know, a model's performance after you've made changes to the training data, et cetera. Like that's all very, very tedious if you don't have a single streamlined kind of way to approach it. Mm. And I wonder if you can speak to, you mentioned integrations and stuff like that. So, you know, let's say that someone has a, a, a chatbot built with something like Watson or something like this. And, you know, they're getting, they're getting, transcripts and logs and stuff like that and maybe they doing things manually at the moment with all of their intents and training data in a in a spreadsheet in fact many i would say that if you're using excel you're actually a step above the very baseline because a lot of people will just have all of their training data held within the platform and every time they change it or update it they update it in the platform and they don't really know if it's changed if it's improved or if it's got worse and they can't roll back and you're just kind of stuck with your training data held in this one place so let's say that someone is using something like that i don't know dialogue flow or, or what or whatever and they want to send their data to human first to start utilizing it how does that kind of workflow work so we have uh, direct integrations with a few of the major vendors and platforms, so including Dialogflow, Watson, and Raza. Um, so you can integrate um, directly to your project, pull in the data, so both the labeled data, let's say your intents, um, and your unlabeled data. So in the case of the platform that supports that, um, you know, pull in the raw conversations. And um, basically, you know, our customers use human first really to do all the work around that data, to evaluate, uh, to to uh, track the revisions, uh, to look at kind of the history of changes, make sure that it's clean before pushing it back into their production systems. Um, and that can be done, you know, as a direct push, uh, again, through our integrations, or, you know, you can export the data. And this typically in most of the development workflows is what's going to happen is that there's going to be um, some kind of 
uh, you know, more formal diff process to look at the track changes uh, before merging it into a production. So, and, and kind of we've coming from a, a development background and also, you know, seeing that our customers, our enterprise customers that typically are kind of more mature and, and have reached that state where they've invested in teams internally, um, you know, we, we're, we favor a more flexible approach to saying, you know, if you can get the data out and, and kind of easily support formats and allow that to integrate within your workflow, it's going to be easier for you to, to ensure the quality. That said, we are, um, we're actually about to release a kind of a merge feature uh, specific, specifically for Dialog CX. So that allows you to really review every single change from your, you know, entities, um, and intents, tags, things like that, straight in human first to accelerate the process. Mm, nice, nice. It's um, it's interesting. So, where do people? Let's say, for example, uh, so a company is just kind of getting started, so they don't have a chatbot, or maybe they've got some live chat, perhaps, or they've got calls like human to human calls in the call center and stuff like that. So they don't necessarily have, you know, an ongoing piece of automation where they can use to to tweak and train and stuff like that. Inevitably, this this tool can be used to generate a place to start, to give people an idea of the kind of conversations that, that they customers are having and all that kind of stuff. I wonder if you can walk through, like, from a, from a for a customer who is who's got nothing, what what's the best thing for them to do to get started to use the the data that they might have floating around in in places to begin to formulate what this thing should should look like. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and the reality is a, a lot of companies have these very kind of ambitious digital transformation roadmaps. They know that they want to go towards automation, uh, towards better analytics, uh, all these things that ultimately can be powered by, you know, natural language understanding. Um, but, you know, the, the real question is, what do you prioritize and how do you, you know, figure out what you need to build first and how? So I think definitely starting from the data that you have um, and, and exploring that data and starting to build a sense of, you know, what are the key things that we find and that we're able to, you know, train an AI on um, is a starting point. And that that certainly is, is one of the key things and learnings that we got when building Human First is that um, when, when you start, you don't know what can and should be labeled and used as input into an AI model. So the hard part is, is really that discovery process um, and that kind of bottom-up um, workflow that's iterative, whereby you, you really start from massive amounts of data and then try to kind of find a signal in there and amplify that signal to build you know, something that represents your, your problem, maybe that you're trying to solve. So, you know, the, the first step I think is building that. And then from there, so building, let's say a taxonomy that represents what you're seeing in the data, where a team then can look at this and say, okay, well, what is really the thing that we can build from this data that is going to bring our, our company the most value in the shortest amount of time? Because it might be that, you know, you realize, you know, we could automate this triage I don't know, in a customer support case, okay, we have data and at this stage of specificity, you know, we could, we could build uh, an, a classifier that's going to help us triage, you know, incoming requests into, you know, into our live chat agents. Um, once we've deployed that, like that might already bring us a certain level of optimization to our operations. 
Now, okay, let's dig deeper and maybe, you know, we want to automate a part of that workflow more, uh, more deeply, right? So we can go deeper into the data, be more specific about the classifier that we want to build because we know that we have that ability from our data. Um, so I, I think ultimately human first for a company that doesn't have anything um, is really a tool to maybe prevent kind of jumping into things without considering the big picture. Um, and also by taking yeah, a higher level view and being able to more quickly understand like the, the, the broad picture. Um, what we see is that there's a lot of effort being put into kind of very going deep down into uh, trans or conversational AI flows and saying, let's automate that uh, part of a flow really deeply, but then missing like a very, very long tail of requests and, and kind of therefore missing the opportunity to also cut costs and, and, and optimize across, you know, other parts of the operation. So um, I, I think that starting from the data and having a really strong uh, exploration and discovery uh, gives you better uh, prioritization and, and better call making. Mm, mm, that's really good. Where would you say the sweet spot for human first is? Would you say it's in that beginning phase? Or would you say it's more in the kind of ongoing management of your kind of AI or, or kind of like uh, unstructured data management kind of program? During the, during, is it during the maintenance part or is it at that beginning part we we're mentioning? So um, most of our customers, it's uh, once they've already deployed a project and they, they kind of hit that wall where they say, okay, we really want to improve the, 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 the scope and the accuracy of what our, our AI is going to be able to understand and do. Um, that said, like what we're seeing is that once, once you start with a use case and, and, and a certain type of data, or once our customers do it anyway, um, you know, they quickly realize that there's other types of data that they can bring in, uh, whether that's, you know, um, you know, things like NPS reviews or, or they started with, um, I don't know, sentiment analysis and they want to bring in their call center data. So I, I think that the, the, the a lot of companies are kind of the beginning of the journey and have a lot of things that they know and see they could be doing, but the path to go and do that isn't clear. So we see that like they'll they'll start with human first because they've reached a certain maturity level in a certain area of investment, but then realize that there's a lot of other areas where they actually want to get that um, control and 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 leverage the data uh, to automate or or improve their understanding of what's going on. Um, so I, I think that as the the market matures and as more and more companies become comfortable. Um, with kind of working with their own data, uh, they're going to use human first to, you know, figure out and to identify new projects that they should be building on. And they'll already have the data there to do that. Mm, mm, that's good. So there's, there's lots of data we've alluded to. We've alluded to lots of places where people will get data from calls, live chat, chatbots, voice assistants, you know, all of these different different areas. <clears throat> but I know you wrote something on the on the human first blog, which we'll put um in here, which is the whole concept of utilizing things like knowledge bases and help centers, I think you called it, to to utilize that content. Because a lot of businesses do have lots of content and lots of data that exists in various guises in wrapped up often in various different systems. So I wonder if you can kind of maybe elaborate a little bit on your thinking around this 
as I think you mentioned, it's kind of like a, an underrated or missed opportunity that, that people are passing by. Yeah, I mean, so th this started because we, we were working with a customer um, who using human first to to go through their uh, their Zendesk help center search queries. Um, and it, it just got us thinking or wondering rather why there there seems to have been this jump between the investment in help centers and then straight into kind of the more advanced chatbot self-serve um, help. And because we, we look almost every single company out there has some form of Zendesk or, or knowledge base uh, that has, you know, typically has been the entry point to the self-serve experience for customers, right? You go to get help, that's where you go to search a query. And then, you know, typically when that doesn't work is when you go and you either call or you'll try the live chat or the, the chat bot. Um, and so the, the kind of our question is that there's a trove of data and of, of really valuable insights around what people are searching for. So that's a first source of data that we didn't see or that we don't really see uh, companies using a lot as a starting point, let's say, to build a chatbot, whereas it, it really could be because it gives you a strong, strong signal of what people are, are looking for when they come for help. Um, but also, like, it got us just to wonder, and this is what the blog post I wrote about is, you know, why... Uh, why help centers didn't evolve um, rather, you know, more intelligently? Why did the NLU part of things, you know, go straight to chatbots and not rather be kind of built from the help center itself? Like, why is a search not powered by better uh, results? Um, and, you know, still still today, most help centers are powered by like keywords, uh, mm -hmm. which is which is really bad in terms of um, output. So. You know, I don't. I don't know if the. I don't know. Like my my hunch is that simply it's a, it's a more exciting kind of avenue, and like these new these new developments are always more fun for people to to try to hack on than you know to improve a, a really big monolith of a system like help help centers are. Um, but we do see kind of interesting data available for most companies today in things like their search queries uh, from their help center. And those typically can be added to the training data set that would improve or that would, you know, be used for a, for a chatbot as well. And you see it the other way, like you see a lot of, uh, let's say, ADA uh, chatbots that ultimately are pointing back to help centers. So there's definitely this, this synergy between the two. Um, so I, I think I'm curious in general and, and trying to, to sense the opportunity of like, why are help centers not um, something that you know, are, are closer in a sense to the, the type of performance and capabilities that chatbots have um, and, and why are they very siloed? But that was the, what the blog post was about. Yeah, it is really weird, isn't it? Because you've got like a lot of the help centers these days also come with a live chat component. And so it's almost like there's been a step taken into live chat Um and a lot of them, like Zendesk, for example, there's an email component to Zendesk as well, which is just a natural language communication channel. Um, but it's always humans in the loop, so to speak. I know your likes of Intercom has some extremely rudimentary bot building capabilities, but really to get any use out of it, you need to use the Watson integration or something similar. And I know that Drift have, you know, the beginnings of a platform, which I can't really comment too much on because I'm not overly familiar with it. But it seems as though they've kind of gone to like from the, the typical self-service help desk situation into a live 
chat type of situation. But it doesn't seem, I mean, I think, I reckon if you went onto LinkedIn or whatever and you you went to Zendesk and Intercom, you'd probably find that they've got the beginnings of a team set up now. I'd be very surprised if they don't have, you know, data scientists and NLU engineers and conversational architects and stuff like that. I'd be very surprised if they didn't. But it does, even if they do, still feels quite late to the party when you've got, as you mentioned, Ada, you've got a bunch of other companies that have been building these kind of like uh, front ends to this knowledge base stuff for, for quite a while. It seems a bit late to the party, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably, a, there was a missed opportunity for the, the, the help center to really to be that building block, that starting point, um, because it had that data. And you can easily imagine, and I can't speak too much to Intercom or Drift's capabilities today, because I haven't really looked at those platforms in the last uh, two years now. But I know that back then, um, you know, as you said, it was, it was very basic what you could build in terms of automation or in terms of smart replies. And that's really what led us in the, you know, to, to build human first is that we saw that gap, um, you know, clearly in those platforms that didn't have the, the ambition to be like NLU platforms, um, you know, because even that gap wasn't even in kind of, di- or was, was a dialogue flow, Watson, nuance, like we saw it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but you think like, because that's where the conversations or the communication and self-serve starts. That's where kind of, again, that centralized data that can be used and spread out across a lot of use cases. Well, if you have that, that part that is where you can start building this taxonomy or, or hierarchy that represents exactly what your customers are asking, you know, it's easy afterwards to apply that to augment the agent uh, to provide, you know, better analytics uh, in, in terms of like what's happening in the conversations, like all, all these capabilities also ultimately stem from the data, like a strong control over that data. And it feels like those platforms had, you know, an early start because that's where all the people were going in the first place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, uh, I, I know Zendesk is investing in this and I'm sure other platforms are as well now. Yeah. You, you mentioned um, the kind of like using search data, so some of your clients and customers are using like either web search data or help center based search data to try and inform, to try and get a grip of what customers are asking for. And if you kind of like, you know, extrapolate that a bit, we mentioned there that, you know, Zendesk, for example, when you raise a support ticket, you'll have like a, a form that you fill in on a website, which is full of data. And then you'll have maybe some email exchanges that go back and forth, which has then got more context in there. Are you seeing that kind of like your customers are also using that kind of data to inform their their kind of strategies? I wonder if you can shed some some lights on the the different types of data that that people are using over and above what you would expect, which is like call transcripts or live chat transcripts or chatbot transcripts or whatever. Like any other like areas of data that you found to be valuable? So in terms of pulling in kind of data into, let's say, conversational AI projects from sources you wouldn't expect, um, right now, like we're not seeing a lot of customers do that today. Um, You know, what we've seen is obviously pulling in, um, let's say, uh, product reviews or, or things of that nature to build sentiment analysis or to build you know, classifiers for that type of use case. So it's still a it's still a pretty clear one-to-one mapping today between kind of the data source and what you're building. Often the data comes from the real live uh, conversations that are happening. Um, so 
I, I think it's a bit because probably it's still a very early stage again um, in terms of market and in terms of ability for, for companies to make efficient use of all those types of data. Like there, there hasn't been a simple tool until now, you know, to, to kind of centralize and to start, you know, thinking about what I can do and thinking beyond kind of what the, the typical uh, use case for the data would be. So, um, you know, my, my hope is that we're going to be pushing um, kind of the, the, the thinking around that and helping companies understand that, you know, yeah, maybe like try, try importing your search queries from Zendesk and, you know, using that in conjunction with, let's say, your call queries or your, your, your call center queries, because with, you know, with the capabilities now, the language models and especially like the larger language models coming out, you know, the, the semantic similarities and the, the ability to kind of bring two concepts, even if they're, they're very different in terms of the way they're formulated, but still match means that you can start from a search query from a Zendesk and probably use that to bootstrap your exploration of, you know, a completely different type of, of um, data set. And I think that's what's in, interesting is that even though the data might not like the, you know, a, a source data A might not be useful to train a model that will be used in B, it might be useful to explore and to act as a starting point to go and find uh, training examples in another data set that can be useful for, um, you know, use case B. And that's clearly the case, you know, I think with, um, if you look at chatbots versus voice bots, you know, uh, there's there's clearly a different way of communicating and, and, you know, you can't use exactly the same data interchangeably, but you can use the same data um, to kind of identify very similar concepts uh, in one data source and in another. Um, so I, I think that it falls down to basically tooling. Uh, and, and I think a lot of the, a lot of the needs that, uh, or a lot of things that are going to unlock that ability are, are around, um, you know, things like human first, but there's, there's obviously other solutions that are going to help um, customers unlock that. Mm. You mentioned large language models. And I've, I've been thinking about this quite a bit recently. I think I've written a couple of things on on the website and on the LinkedIn newsletter about these uh, large language models. I think it was when Google released Lambda 2, um, which looks absolutely fantastic, don't get me wrong. And the examples that they give, albeit you have to take it with a pinch of salt because it's a, it's a demo. It's a little bit like, you know, when Duplex was first kind of launched and you have to take it all with a bit of a grain of salt. But the ability for Lambda 2 to be able to manage a conversation and have a proper, you know, free-flowing conversation about, you know, pets or about, you know, certain topics that they that this kind of defined is absolutely amazing. But some of these things like like Open OpenAI's GPT three and and Lambda two and stuff, it's like they're trained on all of the data available basically on the internet, which isn't contextual to businesses and arguably one could argue most of human first customers a lot of the listeners of this podcast who've got very specific business and enterprise use cases looking at these large language models and i think i concluded at the end of that piece looking at lambda 2 which is the potential for this for google is absolutely huge because if you remember google turned the voice search on google chrome off and instead, in its place, they've put Google Assistant. And so when that happened in 2018 or 2019, my kind of theory was that Google is edging towards making Google Search 
basically Google Assistant so that your first search query isn't actually a search query. It's the beginning of a conversation. And over time, as it's began to do with these smart answers and all this kind of stuff, you will begin to kind of have a conversation with Google. And so when you look at Lambda 2, asking about dogs or asking about things like what actor was in such and such a film and then oh, what film were they in last year all of those kind of conversations you can see Google creating and being able to turn Google search into a dialogue but the conclusion at the end of that was that this stuff right now isn't really for businesses so I'm wondering on generally your thoughts on these large language models and and, you know whether you've played with them and what you think of them and then secondly whether you think there is business application for for some of these things either now or in future yeah so i mean i'm i'm extremely bullish in terms of uh large language models and the role they're going to play uh in the future uh, you know within enterprise use cases as well um so I, I think on the generative side you know they're they're amazing um and and really bring us to this you know real ai uh, sense where where if you don't worry too much about the quality was coming out and you know you're just looking at kind of the interaction that it's enabling uh, without a lot of investment um, you know it's it's it, incredible um, but I think you know the most of the enterprise use cases right now are going to be um, you know div- uh, requiring more the classification side of those models and the classification abilities. And that's where they, you know, they're, they're clearly going to outperform, um, you know, traditional and the, the NLU models that we've had until now, because they're trained on much, much bigger data sets, have much higher dimensionality uh, in their embedding spaces. So, you know, they're going to pick up and be able to really, um, you know, classify things with much less uh, training data required. So, um, I'm, you know, really excited to see what's happening because ultimately it's very complementary to, you know, our, our our vision, which is that what's going to unlock uh, enterprise value is going to be increasingly tapping the long tail of data and being able to really harness not just kind of a few, a subset of that, but, you know, entirely what's going on in conversation. And, you know, if you're able to to label and to, um, you know, identify something using only three pieces of data uh, instead of requiring 50, then it means that you can, you know, very, very quickly start building much deeper and much more granular um, um, knowledge uh, trees and, and things that represent your business, uh, thanks to these models. So, you know, we're, we're integrating now with um, some, of the, some of the models out there, um, including Cohere uh, and OpenAI, because you know, they're enabling to power our core functionality, um, you know, including the semantic search and the clustering and provide different um, results than what RNLU provides. And I think that it's not about like replacing, completely replacing it with one or the other. Rather, if you have multiple models, they're all going to give different types of signals that you can use, uh, you know, to to build out your final product. Um, so in terms of the second part, uh, you know, application to enterprise use cases, um, you know, on the so on the classification side, I think that we're just at the beginning. Like most companies are not that mature uh, and are, are trying to figure out how to leverage them. Um, and I think that a big part of that is going to, you know, require, you know, fine tuning those models 
and you know using them efficiently um, with you know the few shot learning kind of provide the examples and also being able to observe the output and kind of use that to further fine tune. But I don't think it's very far from being able to you know uh, replace ultimately some of the NLU engines because it'll simply give better results uh, you know faster. Um, now. In terms of purely generative kind of chatbots, I mean, that's obviously something that, you know, most of these large language vendors are, are certainly working towards is to say, you know, give, give me a data set of like this bank's conversations loaded in and magically it'll provide, you know, a full conversation. Um, I think we're far from there, even though some of the vendors probably will claim it's, you know, closer than, than, than you know, we, we think because the quality again of the output is so important and you can't risk um, even even if it's not something that's going to destroy the reputation you can't risk giving a wrong opening hour or a wrong result um, any and also anything obviously that's uh, tied to your personal information um, will require kind of hooking in and being able to integrate then into some backend and that I don't think is a solved problem and will require kind of, stepping out of the purely generative and again being able to tie yourself to something whether it's an intent a label whatever it is to say okay well this is where we are and now we need to go do something else um, so I, I think that ultimately like we're not going to go towards a purely generative uh, use case for enterprise at least not in the next few years I but that's I, I might be surprised it's mm. interesting that concept of having some degree of intent based kind of models mixing it up maybe with some of those kind of like large language models here and there. It's like, I could imagine a world where, you know, you mentioned the help, the help centers. I can imagine a world where, you know, you want the, the most organizations need to do a bit of work anyway in a lot of these areas because they've got, some of them have got data in multiple different places. You know, some data might exist on a flat web page. The same data might exist in a help center article. The same piece of content might exist somewhere else in the mobile app. And that's three pieces of content stored in three different places. And it's written to be read rather than written to be said or written in a conversational format. So I would probably say that a lot of organizations have got a bit of work to do to, to move towards that more kind of like headless CMS approach where you have snippets of content that can be served into multiple different channels. And if it's written conversationally, then you could potentially streamline a lot of that. So I can imagine a world where if you've done that, you could potentially feed that content into one of these engines, not, not in a way that enables it to generate new content because arguably you've already done the crafting of the content but in a way that almost uses that as supplementary training data to enable things like those faq kind of experiences which are often difficult to do because one question might be semantically almost identical to another question but the only difference might be you know the an entity for example so those are typically quite difficult to do uh, with these traditional NLU systems. So I can imagine a world where that kind of thing can happen. I don't know what you think about, about that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I don't know if you saw, um, I, I think you follow Cobus, but I saw yes. one of the posts uh, where he's looking at kind of applying open AI, um, you know, with an intent kind of based approach and using the generative side of open AI uh, to merge kind of answers together and to build this, you know, kind of response that is, uh, can be stitched and go and find, you know, answers from different areas. And I think that's, that's the reason why, you know, I'm excited about large language models is because they open like this 
this world is very hard to do or impossible to do uh, without kind of a, a generative approach. Um, so it's more like the end-to-end conversation generation that I think is difficult to difficult to do um, if you want to uh, tie it to an enterprise use case, but for specific kind of questions or for bringing, you know, at, at a particular point of the conversation, uh, either summarizing or generating kind of a, a, a combined answer, I think they're, they're really impressive. Um, and I've, you know, what's, what's interesting is to see now how open models are, how quickly open models are coming out. Uh, so Ulether AI and now Bloom, kind of like this field is exploding with models that are increasingly, um, you know, cheap to run. Uh, increasingly powerful and, and open for anybody to experiment with. And, um, you know, arguably the performance difference between a 20 billion and 120 billion parameter model is going to be hard to justify or to even prove um, uh, unless you like invest heavily, uh, you know, for your use case and your data to show that. So a lot of the people are going to be trying out like smaller models and getting much better results already than what they were used to. Um, so yeah, again, like I think, I think large language models are, um, you know, definitely here to stay. And what's going to be important is, is helping customers, you know, easily leverage them. And I think for that, like our vision is that, you know, you need really strong data centric tooling to both ensure that the quality of the fine tuning data is high. And also for the observability of what comes out of a model afterwards, you need to be able to look at kind of QA, you know, ultimately it's a virtual agent. So the same way that you'd be evaluating an agent's performance, you need to evaluate the model's performance. And for that, you need to be able to, um, again, understand what's happening and, and probably associate those things to things that you can, you know, uh, you know, pull up in an analytics or in a BI tool or, or, or whatever it is. Mm, mm, nice. Um, cool. So, so to wrap up then, we've got a few comments here. Felix has said, nice boardroom, Gregory. I concur. I often comment on that background. I think it's very smart. Uh, I actually thought the first couple of times I was, I spoke to Alex on your team, I genuinely thought that that was where he was sat. He must have like, I don't know if he's got a green screen or something crazy like that, but it looked very impressive. Uh, and then Jay has said, great talk, Greg, congratulations. Uh, I also concur with that. Uh, so so three, three um, kind of almost quick fire-ish questions to wrap up with. And right. in each of the three questions, there's going to be um, three kind of quick fire answers, so to speak. So, Three questions about three things. So, for example, the first question is three things that are exciting you about the conversational AI space. The next question would be something like three challenges that you've observed teams facing. Uh, and arguably, if we can quickly say how they've solved them. And three uh, pieces of advice that you would give that people are uh, to, to help people create better conversational AI. So we'll start with the first one. Three things that are exciting you about conversational AI at this moment in time. Um, so shift from model-centric to data-centric kind of development of the AI. Um, large language models and kind of their impact and, and usefulness, applicability. Um, 
And then uh, I think voice, so quality of voice data with ASR technology, you know, companies like DeepGram, et cetera, uh, that's opening up a lot of, uh, you know, new sources of uh, data to play and to, to capture value from. Nice, wicked. And then three, either challenges or three mistakes that you that you witness people or teams making on a, on a fairly regular basis and, and how they might resolve them, probably by using human first, but there may be some surprises. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I mean, certainly not using, um, you know, not using a, a better solution to kind of manage the data and to continuously improve it. Uh, so, you know, using Excel in particular, I think there's human first is a better uh, solution. Um, second, I mean, I think that a lot of um, I think a lot of the flows in conversational AI sometimes uh, could be simpler or even, you know, brought outside of conversational AI itself. So I'd argue that it's not always the case that it's going to be easier, faster to have an exchange of uh, messages versus going to a form or to a you know, specialized UX. Uh, so I, I think that you know, teams should think beyond the hype and maybe think more around like what is the best user experience for a particular uh, flow. And then uh, third problem, um, I think, uh, yeah, I think teams, um, again, like don't, or not, not, I don't want to generalize, but I think that um, a lot of the, a lot of the investments that are, you know, are, are long-term investments. And I think being able, taking more time ahead to look from the raw data, starting from kind of what is the, the ground truth in the business, um, you know, probably helps avoid uh, a lot of lengthy development that might not lead like higher uh, results. So I would encourage teams uh, to, you know, look deeper and spend more time, much like we do in software development, grooming all the time we spend in design uh, and grooming, um, you know, means that we're not debugging or that we're not uh, shipping things that ultimately aren't used. So, um, yeah. Cool. Cool. I was going to say three things, three bits of advice, but I think you kind of covered three bits of advice on the back end of those questions there, which is really good. And a great summary of the conversation, because I think we wrapped that up, or you wrapped that up pretty well there. Um, cool. So, boys and girls, you can definitely go to humanfirst.ai to check out more. Uh, I'll put those links to those blog articles as well in the show notes because uh, they are really good and definitely worth reading. Um, and yeah, well, I'll put those in the show notes for those of you that want to go and check them out. Any other kind of um, resources or areas that you would direct people to, Greg? Uh, no, I mean, feel free to, to reach out to me uh, directly on LinkedIn. Uh, happy to connect and uh, love Love uh, discussing like I just did with you, Kane. Thanks a lot for having me uh, after your return from holiday. I <laughs> hope uh, <laughs> hope it wasn't a brutal uh, uh, return back to reality. No, it was good. It was fantastic. It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> it was good. Yeah, no, really, really good. I really appreciate your time, Greg. Thank you very much for, for joining us. And uh, thank you all for tuning in. And yeah, do check out Human First, humanfirst.ai. Check out deepgram.com forward slash VUX world if you're looking for some speech recognition. And do go to vux.world forward slash subscribe if you want to be in the know of all of these episodes and shows that we do with people like Greg, industry experts uh, that are leading the way in conversational AI. NLP and customer experience uh, and also you'll get invited to our webinars which we do as well if you do subscribe to that so yes we'll see you on the next one very soon thank you again Greg it's been an absolute pleasure thanks Kane it's great meeting you and, uh, seeing you bye guys nice thank one you. bye now